Welcome to the Commercial Disco, the journey of commercial discovery. The only show dedicated to the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. Hi, I'm James Riley, Editorial Director at InnovationOz.com. Welcome to the Commercial Disco. I'm talking today with Adrian Turner. Adrian's the Chief Executive of Mindaroo Foundation's Fire and Flood Resilience Initiative. By way of background, Adrian spent 18 years in Silicon Valley building businesses before returning to Australia in 2015 as the founding CEO of Data61, the CSIRO's data business unit. This is the team that led the development of the National AI Roadmap, AI Ethics Framework. It provided standards advisory for the consumer data right and all that good stuff. So welcome, Adrian. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, hi, James. Glad to be here. So you've written a policy paper that uh, went into our innovation papers, and it kind of led off our section on sovereignty and resilience. But effectively, the paper was a treatise on the fact that prevention is better than cure. So just by way of introduction, what are we talking about when we're discussing resilience as an issue, and why is it an innovation issue? Like you put it forward very strongly in, in terms of that innovation context. So resilience is defined by the United Nations as the hazard or the risk, the likely exposure to that hazard, and then the inherent vulnerability that means if you're exposed, the impact's greater. In layman's terms, it's basically the ability to absorb a shock and bounce back from it and bounce back stronger. And our focus is around natural disasters and natural threats and this country's ability or inability to continue to absorb natural threats and the shocks and be able to bounce back from it. Okay, so I suppose we've become quite used to these things, haven't we? Unfortunately, with with the fires that we had a couple of years ago, with the, the floods in northern New South Wales and Queensland, various other places, uh, and the pandemic. So when we're talking about these shocks, there's a dollar figure attached to it, and there's a very steep human cost. There is, and to your innovation question a minute ago, we can reimagine how we deal with these natural disasters and we can apply everything from machine learning and robotics and advanced materials. And it's an enormous opportunity not only to help the country domestically, but there are new export opportunities here that we can get to and talk more about. The numbers are staggering. The UN put out some statistics that in the last 50 years, 74% of global economic loss, 45% of loss of life in the world is attributable to extreme weather events. That includes drought, that includes heat wave. And we've become numb to it and almost accepting that there's another fire, there's another flood, there's a cyclone. But if you add it up, they cost Australia today about $38 billion a year, let alone the cost to the environment and the societal cost. When you talk with folks like Lifeline, the number of calls that they're getting surrounding the Black Summer fires that happened a few years ago is actually increasing, not decreasing, because there's a lag. People scramble to get back on their feet. They do, and then it hits. It all catches up, and PTSD is a thing around disasters. Okay, I'm going to dig in a little bit into some of those areas where there's opportunities for innovation, but there's a couple of things I wanted to get out of the way first. 
Mindaroo Foundation is involved in a, a, a bunch of different areas. It, it has, you know, quite targeted programs. Just wondering the, the genesis of this one. Like, there's a lot of things that Mindaroo Foundation could look at. What was the process by which, you know, that leadership arrived at, we need to look at resilience in these areas? I mean, it's not out of left field, but it doesn't strike me as obvious, even though we've had this discussion many times now. Yeah, so Mindaroo really, if you boil it down, focuses on solving system level problems that no one organisation or entity can solve. So whether it's modern slavery, whether it's sustainable fishing, and in this case, the forests feel strongly, having been exposed to fire in the past, and feel strongly around the Black Summer fires that we need to do better as a country and we can do better as a country. So I got a call from Andrew asking me to come in and lead standing up this program. And we had a really good conversation about the difference between response, which is the remit of SES, RFS and others, recovery, so how do you begin to rebuild after a disaster, and resilience. And my background is in system-level risk, whether it's cybersecurity, biosecurity or other related areas. And what became clear is we don't focus on resilience or the preparation at all. In fact, the Productivity Commission issued a report in 2016 that said, as a country, we focus 97% of our investment on response and recovery and 3% on resilience. So I agreed with Andrew that it's more challenging, but more interesting to focus on resilience and the system level change, which would be a generational change if we could pull it off. That's how we got to uh, focusing on resilience. So... There's a massive communications challenge here, I would think. Like if there's 97% of funding is directed in one area and you're trying to make it an even split, that's a big change. So how are you approaching this conversation? And we'll get to the innovation stuff in a moment, but how do you talk about the upside while there's people living in tents in Lismore, say? Like there is this immediate human cost. How do you temper that conversation to shift the needle? So problem is not uncommon. Like if you look at our healthcare system, it's crisis, interrupt-driven. We're not very good at preventative health, but when something goes wrong, we will rock up to the emergency room and it'll cost the system a whole lot more than it needs to. Cybersecurity was the same. Companies were reluctant to invest to protect their systems and make them more resilient. But when there was a breach, they'd pay whatever it took to fix the problem after the fact. So it's not specific to disasters, but as our economy and our world remains interconnected and as climate becomes a bigger risk vector to Australia. We need to get better at dealing with system level risk and getting ahead of it. And the way we talk about it is the whole world is focused on getting to net zero and mitigation and transitioning to renewable energy and carbon sequestration. And that's a good thing. But every year, we go through natural disasters and they keep showing up and we need to get better at adapting to them. And it's not just that they're showing up frequently and they're extreme, but they're moving around. So you, you only have to look at the floods. You know, we're staring down the barrel of three big rain events here this season, while the Northern Hemisphere is in drought and experiencing fire that they haven't seen before in some cases. So it's also the fact that they're shifting around and, and geographies are not equipped to take the full devastating brunt of, of these events. 
the other thing that we think about, and this is related to communications, is we actually did struggle in the beginning to get people to pay attention to something that might happen in the future. But then we started drawing parallels with military and defence. And this country is capable of investing in a non-partisan way through multiple terms of government. Defence, we spend 2% of GDP or $50 billion a year, and there's good reason to do it. We're not questioning that. What we are saying is those threats may show up. We hope they never show up. But natural threats show up with 100% certainty every year. And for example, the last time they showed up with these floods, 10 million Australians were impacted by that event alone. Yeah, it's a massive number. It is an interesting way to look at it. There 100% chance of natural disasters or natural events happening that impact people. Given that though, let's get into the tech a little bit. I mean, people would naturally say, well, yes, there is a 100% chance that floods will occur in the future. Shit happens, as, as they say. So how is it that we're preparing? What are we talking about here? I know that you've talked about, you know, using Earth observation, satellite technology to, to spot fires. And I mean, it, it does seem an overwhelming challenge. Yeah, we've got to come together as a country and as a world. It's not government can't solve it, industry can't solve it, you know, the in innovation and emerging companies can't solve it. You've got to come together. And that was really our starting point. We brought together 55 stakeholders across the national system. We met with them every two weeks for four months. And we said, how do we change this system? What does the project and program plan need to look like? And it was all the big reinsurers, insurers, banks, telcos, government. And what became clear was that there wasn't a national common operating picture of risk. So we set about building that. And we used some of the team that I worked with at Data61 helped with this and others nationally. We basically built a national resilience index, a common operating picture for the country of where is risk today and where is it going to show up in the future. So down smaller than postcode, higher resolution, down to 57,000 of those SA1s, they're called, across 45 dimensions of resilience. That was the starting point. And once you understand where the risk is going to be and where it is today, then you can make decisions about how to mitigate the risk. So the methodology we used was emissions methodology. So I think like Apollo missions, where we actually set a quantifiable target by 2025 that we want to achieve to shift the system. And it sounds implausible, but we've got three missions and the first one is around fire. The implausibility is we're seeking to be able to put out any dangerous fire anywhere in the country in one hour by 2025. But what that did by going out and planting that flag and setting that objective is it got everyone thinking outside the box. How would we do that? How could we do that? And where that took us to was the use of machine learning and AI, the use of autonomous systems, and I'll come back to this, and Earth observation, basically looking back at Australia from space to make real-time determination around fire and also the terrain and the landscape. So the Earth observation piece is super interesting. And I think Earth observation has potential to be as disruptive to all industry sectors and government as mobility was, as we move from the desktop to, to mobility and mobile computing. And the reason I think that is we're not far away from being able to instrument every square centimetre of the Earth in near real time and quantify everything from the environment be able to look at things like crop yields in agriculture, be able to detect feral animals, 
be able to look at logistics and shipping bottlenecks and be able to make better predictions about disasters and where disasters are going to show up. So we're very keen on Earth observation for real-time fire detection. And we think that we can get to today's state-of-the-art is Himawari, which is a geostationary satellite that provides resolution of about 500 metres to 2 kilometres square. Think of that as like a pixel size with a refresh rate of about every 10 minutes. And it's not our satellite, so we also have to be able to get access to it to get that data. We think using low-Earth orbit satellites, we can get to 10 to 15-minute refresh rate, but a 5-metre pixel size. And if we can do that, we can detect fires anywhere in the country in almost real time. And we can also detect perimeter, fire perimeter, in almost real time. It will change the way the world deals with fire. I mean, that, that is a staggering ambition, isn't it, really? 2025. So tell me, have you guys got satellites in manufacture? Are, they, are you booked on rockets? Like how, how's that mission going? So we're building a global collective right now, including Northern Hemisphere partners, to go after what we think is a critical piece that has to be solved still, which is the sensor technology. We're also in discussions with organisations that either have constellations or are putting up constellations. So SpaceX and their Starlink constellation today is focused on communications. But because the cost is so low to get those satellites up and they're putting up two to 3,000 a month, they're going to be turning them back into the atmosphere and burning up the entire fleet almost every two years. So it's almost like a cell phone upgrade where you put up a new satellite and the sensor technology gets better and the communications capability gets better on a two or two to three year cycle. It's an absolute game changer for the world. There's another group called Planet that's focused less on communications. Starlink today is very focused on communications. You recall they came up and we're in the news a lot around being able to almost immediately switch on a communications network over Ukraine. Planet's very focused on Earth observation. And then there's another group out of North America that's looking to put up a uh, disaster and fire-specific constellation as well. So there's a lot of innovation. And we've got important capability domestically as well. As it turns out, one of the software providers for Starlink provides the compression algorithms on those satellites. So you've, you've also got to figure out what do you do in situ in space? And what do you send down? How do you deal with seeing through uh, atmospheric noise, how do you deal with smoke and peer through smoke? There's some really interesting problems to solve, but we think they're all solvable. And some of them have been solved in a military context. It's just really about dual-use technology as well and translating that over to the civilian environment. Okay, let's talk about the way governments have responded. There's been very recently in the news, there's a specific example that the New South Wales government, after those shocking floods earlier in the year, a report was handed down that was somewhat scathing of the response, the on-the-ground on response to those floods. And the Perrottet government is now changing an agency from Resilience New South Wales to Recovery New South Wales. Now, words have meaning, I, I, I guess, and you've been quite critical of that. At the federal level, the Emergency Management Australia Agency is about to be merged with the National Recovery and Resilience Agency. So these are two quite or two very different approaches or or responses to to what's uh, what's happening out there. So just talk us through 
what's happening in New South Wales and why that's an issue, and then why it's a good thing that those two agencies at the federal level have uh, are getting joined. Yeah, so if we think back, the Black Summer fires were horrific. And on the heels of the Black Summer fires, there was a recognition that we need to be better prepared for these sort of disasters. And New South Wales created Resilience New South Wales. So it was a relatively new agency with new reporting structures and Shane Fitzsimmons was appointed the leader for Resilience New South Wales. And that signalling around the importance of resilience, even in the name, was critical. Now, what's happened is there's a tail. After these large events, it can take years. It can take three to five years for a community to get back up on its feet if they get up at all. We delivered temporary accommodation immediately to hundreds of people in need, converted shipping containers, basically, into livable pods. So I've seen firsthand on the ground the devastation and the tail. So the agency was dealing with the tail for the Black Summer fires, and then we get hit with these floods that were epic in terms of the scale. I mean, the scale was just enormous. So they had to mobilise the recovery side of that, and some things fell down in that response and recovery phase that led to an inquiry. And the report is very thorough and it's well thought through. And I have a huge respect for Mary O'Kane, who was uh, one of the authors of that. Very well, well done. But what I think happened was, and unfortunately, I think it's, you know, the political cycle and politics playing into this, there was a reflex, I think, to rebadge recovery. And to your point earlier in the conversation, it's very hard to sit across the table from someone whose house is full of mould or they haven't got a roof over their head and say, we hear you, but we're going to focus on investing for something that might happen two or three years from now where they need the help today. So it's not an either or, it's actually a continuum. And that's what we're advocating for is to say the response, we can be better informed and quicker in response using technology and do things ahead of time like fuel load management models using different approaches for fuel load management and lifting resilience in the built environment. There's things we can do even ahead of, but the response bit, the recovery, and when we're building back, we don't build back like for like. We use it as an opportunity to build back stronger. And this is where Infrastructure Australia has to lean in and the state counterparts is if there's a project slated for years down the road, bring it forward and build back stronger. Don't build back like for like. And then resilience. So in the off-season, build resilience. And that's a function of across all levels, economic, environmental and built. And a big piece of that, we think, is mobilise volunteers. So we've also launched the Australian Resilience Corps as a new volunteer program. It's between Defence and SES and RFS to help in the off-season lift resilience. That needs to happen. The signalling, though, from New South Wales government in labelling this recovery in New South Wales and basically throwing the good out to knee-jerk to focus on response and recovery is where we think we've taken a big step backwards. So the programs of work may play out that there's still a focus on resilience, but the signalling right now is about recovery being the primary focus, which is true for Lismore, but not true for uh, the state of New South Wales if you look over the next five to ten years. Okay, and just very quickly, I'm conscious of time, but the Emergency Management Australia and National Recovery and Resiliency at the federal level, 
that kind of brings together those two things. Is that that's exactly what you're saying? That's right. And the team there is very focused on resilience and recognises how important it is for us to lift resilience. In the lead up to the election, there was a, which we we welcome was an announcement by Minister Watt of two hundred million dollar resilient resilience fund allocation. Um, if you put that in the context of an $8 billion cost of these floods, though, we need to do more at, at all levels of government. So I think this continuum of response, recovery, resilience, and that agency coming together, I think what has been signalled at the same time is that that agency is going to be an all-hazards agency. It's not going to be just natural disasters, but it's going to be things like supply chain crunches in a pandemic response, it's energy resilience, it's going to be a broader remit to the agency and we welcome that because what we don't do very well and no one does very well right now is think about consecutive concurrent and compound risks. So COVID by itself we can deal with, but COVID plus a flood becomes an entirely different proposition plus supply chain crunches plus an energy transition risk all of that together becomes something much, much bigger, and that's what we need to get good at dealing with. I guess it's quite extraordinary just in the last two years that, like, the words sovereignty or, you know, the, the words resilience have taken off in mainstream conversations in a way that would have been hard to predict a few years ago. I mean, I know we're talking about building uh, semiconductor fabrication plants again in Australia purely attached to those words, you know, for reasons of of sovereignty and resilience in response to the supply chain crunches caused by global strategic tensions and, you know, all the stuff that happened in Taiwan recently and all of these issues. It is amazing how much these two concepts that were quite foreign to a mainstream conversation are now front and centre across a huge range of areas. Yeah, look, that's uh, that's exactly right, James. And I think the way the world thinks about risk generally is evolving to be more resilience-centric. And we saw it in cybersecurity. People were in the early days talking about cyber risk and the conversation shifted to resilience. How able are you to absorb it? And that plays into business continuity as well. So, yeah, we see it. We see it with foot and mouth on our doorstep as well and our entire agriculture sector staring down the barrel of risk there. And where that's going to manifest too is in insurance. So a big portion of Australia is uninsurable and the government has had to step in to provide a $10 billion reinsurance pool. And the challenge is as well that the risk, the disaster-related risks are not showing up in the balance sheets of lenders yet. It's not transparent. And so there's this embedded risk that we're just not properly pricing into our economy. And if I can't insure, I can't borrow. It's a prerequisite to be able to borrow. So my sense is that these natural threats are going to become a bigger issue for this country. And we need to get out of this reactive mode to get ahead of those threats. All right. You're a couple of years into it now. Adrian, I mean, it's a bit hard to give your own self-assessment, although given that when you started, conceptually, it was quite foreign to people. It is a mainstream conversation, but it's still very hard to move that needle. Where are you up to? I think we're winning. I think the New South Wales government restructure on the surface is a setback, but really I think it's in the detail of what's the program of work that's going to flow around resilience. 
But as you said, it is mainstream and down at a community level as well. We're engaging with communities that are building very local, has to be locally led because no two communities are the same resilience plans. And when we talk with government as well, and we look at the quantification of risk through our resilience index, we feel good that we're on track through our 2025 objective. Where we're sitting relative to where we said we would be sitting when we started, we're right on track. All right, Adrian Turner, Chief Executive of the Mindaroo Foundation's Fire and Flood Resilience Initiative. Thank you very much. Thank you, James. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Commercial Disco Podcast. Please like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And please go over to our website, innovationoz.com, to check out our recent stories on tech, innovation, and public policy. Or you can follow us on social media to ask us any questions or be a guest on the show. Until next time, this is the Commercial Disco wishing you a great week ahead.